Welcome to Come and Reason Sabbath School. I'm Linda Ojala, and I'm filling in for Tim Jennings today, who is out of the area into Texas. So we're studying the lesson two of Oneness in Christ. Title of this lesson is Causes of Disunity. So let's have a little prayer and get started. Dear Lord, we know all through the ages disunity has occurred Rifts have occurred. We know that you have the solutions for our problems, but we are hard-hearted and we don't look to you as we should. Please guide us in our study today. Help us to understand what we can do to contribute to unity in a positive and knowledgeable way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, disunity. I... I'm going to jump out on a limb here and say that I imagine that this Sabbath school was written because of several things that have been happening in the church, maybe ordination of women, other things that have divided. I think our class has ruffled some feathers sometimes. So I think we're in a unique position to really um, do an examination of the causes of disunity. The Bible describes only two groups. So, you know, if you're not in unity with one group, maybe you're in unity with the other group, but there's only ever two groups. Good, bad, the sheep versus the goats, the righteous versus the wicked, God's followers versus Satan's followers, the saved, the lost, those on the right hand, those on the left hand of God, those who love others uh, so much that they care for them without a second thought versus those who make a show of doing good things without a relationship with God. People who are maybe glasses half empty versus people who are glasses half full. We differ in a lot of ways. And I imagine if we all took a poll of every single thing that we believed about our faith or anything, we would all be different in some way or another. I don't think we're clones of each other. I don't think God expects us to be clones of each other. But we differ in so many ways. It's not just men and women. It's children. Are you tall? Are you short? Are you slim? Are you wide? Are you a city dweller? Are you a country dweller? What are your views on religion or God or that there is no God? Your political opinions can vary greatly on the same actions and activities. We even have disunity in ourselves. I don't know if you've noticed that. I have. The, the disunity between your heart and your mind. Your mind is telling you, do this. Your heart's going, no, I don't want to. <laughs> I want to do something else. And you have a struggle even within yourself for unity. So how could we possibly think there wasn't going to be struggles between us on how we think? Do you know that this is the first time in history that there have been four generations in the workforce at the same time. Each generation has an entirely different perspective on work. You know, some people like, I will do anything, I'll work all night long to get something done. Some people like, well, okay, time's up, I'm only being paid for eight hours, and eight hours is all I'm doing, and I'm out of here. I don't care how far behind this is, I'm out of here. You have so many different, even opinions about work through the generations. Will we ever think alike? You know, even in hair salons, 
or dinner with people. They say, stay away from religion and from politics because people hold on to those opinions very dearly. They thought a lot about the opinions. They came to their opinion. They'll protect their opinions. They'll go down with the ship <laughs> protecting their opinions. And if you don't, if you want to get along, you learn not to bring up subjects in our family. Ken and I, in our family, we have people who are diametrically opposed to the way we look at things and how we get along and have unity in our family is to not talk about those subjects because what is the point? They're not going to change their opinion. We're probably not going to change ours. So we pick subjects that we can agree on, things that we can enjoy talking about together and and save our relationship that way. And so in a way, that's a kind of a unifying thing. Pick things that you can agree on. When I married my husband, I hope you don't mind me telling this, um, I already had two children from a previous marriage, and they were young teenagers. Really bad time uh, to get remarried. <laughs> the, my, when Ken came home, I'm trying to think how to say this. When Ken came home from work, I was thrilled that he would sit down on the couch, put his arm around me, ask about my day, tell me about his, you know, watch TV together, whatever. But guess what? My teenage girls viewed that same situation in which I delighted, having missed a lot of that the first time around. They, their opinion was that Ken was lazy. <laughs> because he came, they were used to, the man works and then he comes home and he works around the house, all around, everywhere, uh, until bed and then you go to bed. That was, that was what a man did. There was, they didn't realize at the time the value of sitting and communicating, weeding the garden as you go, really, you know, they didn't see that value. They just saw somebody that would come home and talk to mom instead of doing something. So I thought, you know, here we are. That was a real time of disunity, I will say, within our, our family is the way we looked at each other. I told people, I said, I feel like I'm a little bit the negotiator between the Arabs and the Israelis because, you know, they, they weren't, you know, jiving very well and I was the go-between. You know, tell them, make sure they understand this. <laughs> um, and so in my own family, I've experienced the difficulties of disunity. And it is hard to fix some of those uh, problems, <laughs> It's one of the toughest things I've ever done. I don't know if any of you have done the blended family thing, but it's not easy, especially when you start off with having teenagers. <laughs> so there are things that come together that are different, but end up being unifying. I, I can list three examples. Maybe you can think of some more. I, I first thought of fruit salad. You know, you have all these different kinds of fruit. You throw them into one thing, mix them up, serve it, and you eat it as a group. And the grouping tastes good, called fruit salad. But it's different than any one of them all alone, but it tastes good. I thought, uh, being a nurse, the human body. You know, I've got fingernails that do something very different from my legs, for example, or my stomach or anything. Oh, yeah, I'll do. So here's an example of entirely different functionalities, but they are working together as, hopefully, as a unifying effect so that I can live and get around and work and do what I need to do. Then I thought of the military. 
you know, they handle things a little bit differently. And I have not been in the military, but have talked to many people who have. And the efforts at first seems to be boot camp where your will and everything about you is kind of shredded down. And then you're built up to be a soldier, unifying. If anybody's been in the military, does that sound about right? You know, the effort is now the group, not you, the group, which suits the needs of the military very well you know now you're a you were very different people when you came there but now you're a cohesive force that will fight to save the lives of each other and to stave off the enemy and protect the country and so on anyway can anyone else think of something as an example of something where you're very different things but come together to be a unifying force i'm pretty sure i haven't covered them all but Happy? You mentioned fruit salad. We're also in a vegetable salad. Mm. Years ago, we only used certain things in a salad. Nowadays, they put cranberries with spinach, with just the more mixture, the better. But the thing that pulls them all together is the dressing. <laughs> yes. Which but we differ according to what dressings we like. <laughs> I will say that. Yeah, the dressing makes it cohesively tasting. But we will even have, I, I'll go through phases where I want this kind, then I want that kind, now I don't, I want the other kind. So, yeah, but that's a good point, though, because sometimes the, the items themselves wouldn't naturally go together, but you do have kind of a, a binding um, element. So what I want to talk about is, and the reason I'm doing this first rather than jumping immediately into the lesson, because the lesson is talking about, and we'll get into it shortly, but the lesson is talking about examples from the Old Testament and so on of, of disunity and what caused them in the New Testament as well. And I just wanted to just talk about unity versus disunity as, as an idea first before we get into the examples. But I do want to say that when I thought about what causes disunity and um, is there a difference between differing beliefs and disunity? Does anything come to mind as regarding, because I think we just understanding what we're talking about, the definitions, is disunity the same thing as having a different idea about something? Thinking differently about something. No. No. And is there a difference between preference and conviction? Oh yeah, I think so. I prefer ice cream, but I'm convicted it's probably not good for me. So we <laughs> can we <laughs> so are we talking about preferences here, unity? I mean, like, you know, you get together as a family, you all have different convictions, but you only stay with the preference level to talk about, okay, for that unity. But what if, if our convictions don't unite us? Then you kind of separate? Yeah, I mean, Eve. When I worked at the New York conference, um, there was a great deal of disunity uh, within the church. And because I worked at the conference, yay me, I got to find out about most of it. But I think really, when we were talking about unity or disunity, it's an attitude of the heart. Because I can believe something completely different from somebody else and still love them and still appreciate them. 
I can even appreciate what they're teaching, even if it's slightly different from what I what I would how I would put something. And uh, I remember a particular instance when um, some of the big guys in the in the conference had gone out to visit one of these churches that was really having difficulty. And they came back and they talked about somebody. Um, and it was really the difference between the ultra-conservatives, who in my opinion were not actually converted, and, you know, the kind of mainstream normal Adventists. Nothing extremely liberal, you know, just mainstream. And they talked about one older lady who was talking about a younger lady, and she said, if that lady were here right now, I would just punch her in the face. And it didn't occur to anybody to rebuke that. Um, instead, they, they recommended that the church just split, and this group never meet with that group, and that group never meets with this one. And that's often the choice. Well, we can't work it out, so let's just divide. And it, it was the heart that was the issue. It wasn't really what they were talking about. It was their heart. If they truly were worshiping the same God, the God of love, the God who changes the heart to love others, then unity would have been a natural result. If our goal is to show respect and dignity to each other, we can differ on our preferences and even our convictions. But if our goal is to show dignity and respect to each other, like what she was talking about, um, to me, that's that would be unity. Yeah, or perhaps we should define unity first. I think most people mistakenly define unity as sameness, uniformity, or conformity, or, or you, know, you agree with me. Okay, that's unity. Now, that's that's not how that's not how unity should be defined. Uh, you can have unity of purpose. You can have unity of character. You can have all forms of unity with with completely divergent backgrounds, completely divergent opinions, completely uh, differing hierarchies. Take the military, for example. If they have a unity of purpose, they may have male and female. They may have uh, privates, sergeants, corporals, captains, lieutenants, all different command types. They may have... Uh, different skill sets. One guy is skilled with uh, operating a tank. One guy is skilled with operating a 50 caliber Jeep mounted machine gun. The other guy is skilled with explosives. The other guy is skilled medic. So they have very, very differing, differing opinions, differing backgrounds, differing skill sets, and different. And but a unity of purpose. We need to, we need to take that city. We need to take that hill. We need to defend this, this outpost. So definitions of unity, and I think, <clears throat> I don't want to hijack things here, but I think a lot of it comes from an understanding that we think that God's government operates like human governments, or God's hierarchy in heaven is the same as human hierarchies in heaven. Or, worse, that God doesn't even have a hierarchy in heaven. That all angels are, are identical. How many of you have thought that before? I have. I was raised thinking that every angel is identical until I read Psalms and, and Ellen White's writings where she talks about angels that excel in strength. I thought, wait, wait, wait. There's angels that excel in strength? Does that mean there are angels that excel in record keeping or excel in speed or excel in messaging or excel in 
The choir? Music. So I think that even in heaven, there's a hierarchical operation in heaven. I agree. I have a dear friend who has a totally different belief set than I do, but we are both seekers. We both love God, and we absolutely love talking to each other about spiritual things. You wouldn't think that we would, because you would think that we would get into an argument or stuff. But we don't try to coerce the other person to believe like we do. We explain why we believe that way, the evidence that we've come across. And to me, it's like, you know, there's a beautiful, big, one of those wraparound country homes, you know with the, and then it has another story and so on and we're like people looking in the windows uh, all those different windows and we're saying to each other I see this and the other one's saying well I'm I see this and if you got really industrious you could get up on the second floor roofing area and look in those windows and say oh guess what <laughs> up here it looks this way and so on if you were really skilled you could break in get in and go to a room that has no outside windows and really really plumb the depths of that house but to me that's what we we just love doing that we are you know we just treasure our time together because um you know it's amazing how many people don't like talking about spiritual things even in the church you can bring up a spiritual topic and people like want to change it to something else right away not that i'm saying every conversation has to be a totally spiritual thing, but it surprises me, I think, how few people really want to talk about spiritual things. And we do. And so we worked together and we mourned that we don't work together anymore. And we get together every time we can, but we just love each other. And I think Eve has really hit something when she's talking about you can be very different, but your heart of love can be shared, you know, with others who will share that back the problem is if you have like some uh, like some people have have said um or eve said <laughs> certain members did not seem to be converted you know they'd longtime church members but not really converted the heart of love was missing somehow it became a routine it's the thing you did you got up on sabbath and you went to to church you know and the heart of love got missing somewhere along the lines but we and I want to just skip over here to to something that's on Friday and since we almost never get to Friday I'm going to jump over there for a second because this pertains to what we what Russell brought up. Um this is on the Friday's lesson the first paragraph. It's a quote from Gospel Workers by uh Ellen G. White who said the Lord desires his chosen servants to learn how to unite in harmonious effort. It may seem to some that the contrast between their gifts and the gifts of a fellow labor is too great to allow them to unite in a harmonious effort. But when they remember that there are varied minds to be reached and that some will reject the truth as presented by one person only to open their hearts when another person per, per, you know, gives it to them in a, I'm paraphrasing now, only to open, open their hearts to God's truth as it is presented in a different manner by another laborer. They will hopefully endeavor to labor together in unity. Their talents, however diverse, may all be under the control of the same spirit. In every word and act, kindness and love will be revealed. And as each worker fills his appointed place faithfully, the prayer of Christ for the unity of his followers will be answered, and the world will know that these are his disciples. And I think that, that cuts across 
church denominations or even people who have no denominations, some of the kindest people I know don't believe in God, which is, I think, sad because some of the kindest people I, should, I know should believe. I mean, I, I do, you know, there are kind people who believe in God too, but it, when somebody loves and is kind and generous without God filling their heart that they know of, and that we have people who say they they love God but are unloving. And you can be right, but you can be mean. You can be cruel. You know, and being right. I, there was one place in the lesson where it talked about, you know, knowing the commandments and obedience to them is this is, solves this disunity problem. <laughs> I'm like, mm, I, I, I kind of felt iffy about that one because I thought you can be right or or be as right as you know how to be but you can be super judgmental and cruel and um, demeaning to other people with your rightness you know you can be right but the heart's missing if the heart is not in there being right won't count for much as it as shown by when Jesus confronts people at the end of a time and says when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. When did we ever do it? When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And then that confronts the other people by saying, you didn't do this. You didn't visit me. You didn't feed me. You didn't clothe me. Well, when did we not do that? When you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. So we are being seen for how we take care of other people. How, you know, how we love other people is, I, from my reading, is the main source of the decisions about our eternity. Actually, I feel like our, our decisions about eternity is as we judge about God's faithfulness, honesty, truthfulness, you know, um, trustworthiness, as we judge him, that's how we get judged. I was just thinking, we've proven this quote out in this class, and the fact that you're up there teaching today is evidence of that, um, we hear, at least I do when I teach, I hear all sorts of comments. And I know I learn differently when Russell teaches, when you teach, than when Tim teaches. So for sure, there is a different, there's just some people connect with the way some people teach or, or the way some people relate to truth. And everybody's not the same. That's so true. If, you, if you've ever been in sales, you discover that to be true. You have to, somebody can, it's just really good salesperson. You think, man, they're just doing great selling. And other people take that same stuff and go and can't sell a thing. <laughs> you know, a lot of it is how you can get this information across to somebody else in a way that's meaningful to them, not just cut cookie cutter. The passage you read from Friday's lesson, she's talking about unity of methodology Presenting truth in love and leaving people free. She's talking about unity of purpose, purpose of winning souls. She's not talking about a unity of personality. She's not talking about a unity of sex, a unity of socioeconomic status, a unity of race. Not talking about any of that. Or skill level. Or skill set. That's right. So unity of purpose and unity of methodology. Uh, there are some place Ellen White has said that God puts people of different temperaments in a family. Does anyone remember where that is? 
in so that we will learn from each other and rub the rough edges off of each other in our family unit. And I think, you know, we feel that. But how did this person get born into this family? They're so different from, I have two children brought up in the same home. They are day and night different from each other, you know, and we have to learn to get along. And that's part of preparing us for a future of, of trying to communicate with different brains Different levels of I love communication, by the way. There is never an end to what you can learn with communication. And because you have such differences, men and women communicate differently. You communicate differently to a child, to a different culture. There is never an end to ways you could improve in communication ability. And God knows that. And he directs you sometimes to somebody who was just, you were just the right skill set, just the right communication level for that person to get it. Uh, anyway, I think diversity is not the same as disunity, in my opinion. I particularly like this passage here that you just read, it's Gospel, Gospel Workers. Work. And um, the whole point, that first sentence I feel sums it up very well. The last part of it. Learn how to unite in harmonious effort. Yeah. This doesn't mean that you're pushing yourself or something like that, you know. Totally selfless. Our effort is toward others. And so what do we do to be able to help others? The harmonious effort. Good. And some people don't understand why we would bother to have a church. That we could just have a spiritual relationship with God and be kind and good to people. So why bother to even have a church? But in my being, again, being a nurse, my view is that a good example would be a hospital. We have a hospital. I mean, you could have sick people and you could have doctors and nurses kind of roaming around trying to find each other and help each other. Or you could have an organization, an organized effort to coordinate these various people's abilities and you go to this floor and you do this and you you do the EKGs and you do the labs and people show up, they go to where they need to go and patients show up and get what they need done. Yeah, you could probably do it without that, but you'd be extremely disorganized and it would take too long to do everything. People would die waiting for care or you'd have too many people here and not enough people there. So I feel the same way about the church. No, I doubt that you really need to be in a church to be saved. But I think there is value in that respect, in that, yes, you could go and do missionary work on your own, but going back to what we were reading in Gospel Workers, as a combined and organized effort, you could do more. You could be more efficient. You could have more funding for what you need to do. You could reach more diverse places instead of everybody going to Palau, you know, maybe some people are going to Cambodia and some people are going to Vietnam and so on. You, you are spread out in a more effective way. Church is also a source of strength. When one person is like Eve went up to the tree, she was vulnerable. If she'd gone with Adam, she might have been less vulnerable. If she'd gone with Adam and God, she would have been probably not vulnerable at all. <laughs> where two or three together, you are a stronger unit. And as, as evidenced by the various support groups that we have, people gravitate toward the support they need. And we are in a battle. We gravitate towards spiritual support. We need each other. 
It's not just that we, you know, existing day by day until we die. We're in a spiritual, strong spiritual battle. I was just reading this week when it was talking about Judas. Uh, at one point it says, when Jesus pointed out to John, the one I'm dipping my food in is the one that's going to betray me, it said, Satan entered Judas. Satan himself. I mean, it's a, it gives you pause for thought. <laughs> you know, that without protection, without the support of each other and so on, the, the unity, the support that comes with that kind of, uh, you know, we are a military unit almost. You know, we are embattled. We are constantly barraged. I'm sure none of us would be alive if it weren't for the protection of God because Satan not only tried to kill Jesus, but tries to get at each one of us. Later on, I guess in heaven, we'll find out all the times we could have died and didn't because we were looked after and we didn't even know it. I think when I think of disunity, I think of things that really bring out disunity in maybe other than home and so on in the workplace or in church are these are things that come to my mind. See if what you think or if you have anything to add. Judging each other, jealousy, anger, hate, competition, greed, pride, fear, inflexibility, error, misunderstanding, misinterpretation, misrepresentation, and challenges to the status quo. In the wor- all my work years, many years, 45, 50 years now of work, there isn't a workplace where some of that <laughs> hasn't been exhibited by somebody. And can you think of anything? Those are the things to me that causes rifts in the staff so that they don't want to work with each other. They're afraid of each other and they hurt each other and they backstab and you get a whole room full of women working together and that's a whole another can of wax there. Words. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that to all the women out there, but hormones, what can I say? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but anyway, those, can anyone else think of things in your situation which you really believe has caused disunity? Because maybe we can apply these things to looking at the church situation, which is what this lesson's about. Eve. Thinking that your way is the only way. We were talking about everybody has different talents and gifts and, and leanings and ways to present a message. And you can kind of see, and, and this has been a controversy in our church for many years, um, and that's music. Music that's all, mostly, singing about the same God. Um, not necessarily the right one, but you know what I'm saying. But it can be a really powerful message, and it can be delivered in kind of a classical style. It can be delivered in a hymn style. It can be delivered in a praise song just kind of like a special music. It can be delivered in rock. Or bluegrass. Or bluegrass. Country. You know, all of these wide varieties of things, and none of those talents and gifts are wrong. And yet we tend to sit in one and say, this one's the right one, and that one's awful and of the devil. Um, it was called Sabbath music. Yes. <laughs> the heading, Sabbath music. Even the church settings, you know, I've been to various churches of various cultures and the styles have been um, eye-opening, shall we say, and I've enjoyed it, but it's been a real difference from what I was brought up. And so it kind of, 
edges you to <laughs> the edge of your comfort level sometimes, you know. I went to a camp meeting and they did that very thing. They said, here's a, here's a piece of music. Many of our hymns actually started off as bar tunes, <laughs> by the way. Um, but they took the same music and they, they gave a sample of this music in all likes of different styles. And then they asked us which one is wrong. And it included almost everyone we just talked about. Which one is wrong? The consensus was that as long as you could hear the words <laughs> and understand them and that if the music got too loud so you couldn't even hear it, what was the point? But as long as you can hear the words, it's going to reach somebody. It may not reach you because you don't like country music, but, <laughs> you know, or whatever, but it'll reach somebody who does. I've, again, seen this, this kind of ha- thing happen um, where, you know, the youth tent would, in that camp meeting was uh, demonized because they listened to contemporary Christian music. And there was this whole big conversation about it, and they were really going at it. And I finally raised my hand and I said, look, you're talking about music that I listen to. And that I could be terribly depressed and upset. And if I turn on that music, just the right song happens to come on and it reminds me to look up to Jesus. And my spirits are lifted and I start praising God. I said, you can't tell me that that's wrong. But here's the other caveat. There's people who are so steeped into the heavy metal type of music that heavy metal Christian reaches them. Even though it doesn't appeal to my ears, it brings them in. And it gives them the right message. I actually know somebody who was brought into the church that way. So I can't argue that that's wrong either. Right. You know, it's the results we need to look at, not not how the message is portrayed. Just celebrate everybody's gift. It's just that we're most comfortable with what we grew up with a lot of times. Yes, Ken. After Kathleen, my first wife, passed away in 1996 from cancer, um, I took the opportunity to visit other churches, other congregations in our area in Maryland. And um, one especially charismatic individual was just revered by many, many people in our area for his uh, his spirit, if you will. And so I wanted to see that for myself. I wanted to understand what it was that was so magnetic and drawing about him. And so I, I attended a number of services. One, one special friend of ours had said that listening to him speak was just like sitting at the feet of Jesus. So I had high expectations. Um, and I'll add that because of the fact that Kathleen and I both had been part of a professional music organization, I was aware of the influence of music in people's lives. How much of the gospel music is so centered on the emotions that you'd never really settle on a principle or a a purpose for your your engagement with God, if you will, in, in a spiritual type of way. So, well, and, and that's, that's I, I didn't speak that correctly, actually. That, that A lot of people would argue with me on that. But anyway, I knew that, that your emotions can be overstirred by, by music. 
That's simply really what I'm trying to say. So when I went to hear this pastor, I was extremely disappointed and and shocked, really, to see, to hear the bitterness in his voice against the diversity or the unity. Take either one. They're, they're practically interchangeable in this situation. And I was shocked. His bitterness dripped from his lips. I have never heard that, not once, from Tim Jennings. Not once. Tim Jennings is a man who is, is on a mission to bring the glory of God back to life in this church and in our lives. And that's why I'm here 10 or 12 years after he got started in this area. So let's come to this, <laughs> since you've, you've kind of segued into uh, this class and maybe ruffled feathers or where we, we think uh, we are. I, just, I had written down, um, does unity smother freedom of thought, being open to new perspectives, seeking truth or new light? I mean, did you just want to say something? Oh, um, because... If that's the case, if you look in Jesus' time, the church leaders were the ones, they wanted unity under what they believed, they knew the scriptures, but when their cherished beliefs or the way they thought the scriptures said were challenged, they wanted to kill him. They, they, they wanted to keep the Sabbath so badly they got him off the cross before Sabbath so they could go and worship him. You know, they didn't realize that at the time, but they were killing the God they were worshiping. And and yet, and those were church leaders, knowledgeable people, the, the creme de la creme, the lawyers of the time, you know, the guys who had made it to the top through the ranks. I really appreciate Nicodemus, even though he knew, you know, he went secretly. At least he went to get things checked out for himself. Because I've got to say that um, part of what bothers me here, I'll just say personally, is that people will hear a part of something and leave or uh, see it through their own perspective and not hear it out or not ask questions or find out more and then go and tell a bunch of other people about it. I cannot tell you how many people who have come to me, retired ministers or wives and stuff, and said, I hear you believe this and that and the other thing, which not at all true. So then I have to explain, no, that's not at all true. But how did people come to these ideas? Because they didn't sit and listen, ask questions. And I appreciate Nicodemus's point of view, because he was listening to all the church leaders. He knew the, the, church, the doctrine you know, as well as anybody did, but he actually snuck over there and took the time to sit and listen. And oddly enough, as smart and as knowledgeable as he was, Jesus said, you're a great teacher in Israel, and yet you don't understand this, you know, what it means to be born again. And and then they should have understood what it meant to be born again, because Gentiles were brought in sometimes and were considered that. But I wish there were more Nicodemuses. <laughs> Although some people say, oh, you know, I don't want to hear anything. I think, what if, Ellen White says, and, you know, and Jesus said to his disciples, I have so much more I can tell you, but you can't stand it yet. So I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, 
And he'll take what's mine and give it to you. I'm paraphrasing in doses that you can take. (laughs) And some of those are new ideas. I see this class, uh, following up on what Ken said, as not so much the brand spanking new doctrines, but I would say that following what Ellen White says in Christ's Object Lessons, page 130 by Ellen White, it says that old truths will be presented, but in a new light. That's the way I look here. And I've put on one of these less, these here, okay, so this is the way I feel about common reason. These are some aha moments I've had. Uh, I could have had a V8. <laughs> Just coming here, I and I tell people, it's... It's not like we learned a whole new doctrine or anything. It's that we look at it in a totally different way. And I want to ask you, first I'm going to list a few of mine, and I want to ask you what you've uh, thought of, how it's affected you. Because we come under scrutiny as if we're, you know, believing far-fetched things. We are not believing far-fetched things. I'm here to say, when you first come, the ideas are different to you. So you have to go back and study the Bible and think about, pray about it. And it may challenge the way you've looked at it, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. Sometimes we have seen it wrong to begin with. And an example would be when we're told, here's Jesus pleading with the Father. I always thought, you know, here's the Father, here's the sinners, and Jesus is going, my blood, my blood, bad cop, good cop, don't kill him. You know, I'm simplifying, but that's the sort of feeling you get. Hold back now. from, <laughs> And yet they are one being. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So that can't be right, right? So it makes a whole different change. The same words can be used, but then you say, I'm going to come over here to wrestle. Jesus is pleading with the Father for you. Because the Father's heart does not need changing. Yours needs changing. Mine needs changing. There's two pleading for us now. A Jesus that we can hear about, we can see walk the earth, was like us. Now he shows us what God is like. So we, this is the pleading with the Father. I can't tell you what a change that made in my view of God and of his character. Just that simple little thing that it's not a big doctrinal thing it's just a change in in the way i view the character of god and i do think the character of god has been very under assault but it's a, it's a 180 degree turn it is jesus is either <laughs> facing the father pleading with him or he's facing humanity pleading mm-hmm. along with the father mm-hmm. it's 180 degrees and and that's just one example another example would be Um, Romans 1. What is God's wrath? There's a big issue about that. But if you read Romans 1, it repeatedly says people were so stuck in what they were doing, so against whatever God had to do is to heal them, that his wrath, his strange act, is letting them go. They're his child. It'd be like if your child was drowning and they pushed your hand away every time you tried to save them. They wouldn't let you save them. It would be a, just the hardest thing on your heart, no matter how sick they were with sin, to let them go and drown. And so that was a big change for me. Another thing about the character of God, this is Jesus and God on the same team. 
<laughs> this is Jesus and God pleading for us. This is the, the kind of wrath God shows is, I'm, I'm so angry at sin and what it's done to you, and I can't do anything about it. I'm helpless to help you. I have to let you go. And, I mean, no parent can say that without almost crying, <laughs> if you think about if that really happened to your child. And those who have children who make terrible decisions in life and repeatedly going down the tubes and you can't, you know, every time you try to save them, they do it again. They go back and back over and over again. I liked when, when uh, Tim compared the Ten Commandments to an MRI. That's the first time I'd ever thought of that. Because an MRI shows you what's wrong, where you're wrong, but it cannot fix you. The commandments can show you what's wrong, where you're off, but they cannot fix you. Only Jesus can fix you. The, the blessing of an MRI or the Ten Commandments is it shows you you need to go over here to the doctor and get fixed. Without the MRI, without the Ten Commandments, we would not know where we were going wrong. This gives us a picture of where we're going wrong. Then we have to go to the physician to take our, our treatment. Um, another thing, I, I kind of knew this, but it solidified or made me think of it differently. Nobody has been punished for sin yet. Death is asleep, and I have, and you'll see in my notes if you look online, I have bunches of, you know, Bible verses for all that and, and stuff. So I'm not going to do all that right now. You can go and get the notes online. But Jesus referred to death as asleep. Daniel's told in Daniel, the last chapter, Daniel 12, it says, those who sleep in the dust arise. They're sleeping in the dust, says Daniel. One of the greatest guys of all time. He didn't immediately go up to heaven or do anything. He, it says, now as for you, Daniel, go your way. You will rest. And at the end of time, you will rise to receive your reward. Well, you know, there's a lot of verses like that. That said, Jesus with Lazarus. He told his disciples, well, he's gone to sleep. So they thought, well, you know, that must mean he's getting better. No, he's dead. To God, everyone is still alive. Nobody has reached the second death verdict yet. Everyone has, is asleep or alive. They're not dead. When we, when we harshly criticize God for people he put to sleep in one way or another, we are, well, let's say the flood or Dathan and Byram where the earth opened up and swallowed them. We judge God. The God of the Old Testament is actually the same God as the new is Jesus. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> but the creator God, all things were made through Jesus, the word. So he is the same God, but he acts in somewhat different ways. So it's a little challenging to look in the Old Testament and see that it is. Why did God do these things? Korodath and Abiram are a fine example. They said the whole congregation is holy. Why are you acting like you're over us? And that has tinges of what Satan said in heaven. <laughs> Why do you think God chose open the ground and just cover this up immediately? Because he'd already won over 250 guys. Uh, not only did the earth swallow them but, and their families and everything, but it, the fire, I mean, the fire did kill the 250 guys. Well, that seems harsh. But when you think of the influence of this, what happened in heaven, well, this same idea, we don't. Why is he running the show? We're all holy. We don't really need that. I can do as good as he does, that kind of thing. When that started breaking out with the Israelites, 
he had to take decisive action. And they're asleep. And so that was, uh, I don't know if anybody else that kind of struck you, but that that has struck me. I, I always, I believe that from reading the Bible that death is asleep. But the thought that no one has really received their final punishment yet, I mean, I, that kind of crept up on me. And Ken. The other glaring example of um, what you're talking about with God, um, making an example of, you know, a situation is with Solomon Gomorrah. Um, here he is essentially negotiating about the lives of all these people in these cities. And Abraham had to know how evil most of them were. He had to know how unacceptable to God's ears their cries really were. And I mean, when you think about the depths of evil that can occur in human humanity, they were there and they were being heard. By well, the cries, as God said, Jesus said, the cry has come up to me. That's right. And I've come down to but check it out. It kind of goes into the idea of prayer because that's the only way we're going to negotiate with God at this point. God wants to hear you ask for what it is that you really want. And if he's negotiating and he's saying, well, this bad thing is going to happen because I don't like like hearing about it anymore. And I don't and you should, you know, walk away from it or reject it yourself. There's a point at which if we're not fully converted, we can say, okay, just go ahead and take care of them. They're all dirt balls. I would have stopped at 150 about the Sodom and Gomorrah people, right? But he said, no, even if there's only two, or even if there's only 10, please save them. So to me, that's, that's a very, very poignant uh, example of God's love for us, that he wants us to pray for good results, for his intervention in our lives. Well, in, in that particular instance, too, if we're thinking about why God does what he does and judging him for what we think he did badly in the, old, in the Old Testament, being a nurse again, I think they had such horrible practices among each other. And we've seen the result more currently of horrible practices coming into diseases that kill and you can't stop the diseases. I believe that a lot of that was sort of cauterizing <laughs> horrible disease and so on that was probably rampant in the group. The cry going up, calling God to hear to research it, or at least telling Abraham that's why he was there. You know, I believe when we get to heaven, we see the whole truth. Bible says, God says, I don't do anything without a reason. Partly, sometimes we need to research what that reason could really be. And then we get maybe a, a better view of God. It makes more sense. We judge him kind of harshly, and I think that I appreciate that about this class, is that we are always seeking to understand God's character of love. And Ellen White says, the last message of the world, to the world, will be about God's character of love. And that's always what we seek here. We're talking about disunity or unity, and I think Eve had it right on the uh, nail on the head when it's the heart and loving each other that's missing.
And there's the cause of so much. I mean, we may be right. We may stand for what we believe is right. But if we do it in a very unloving way, then that will be a, a disunity situation. Anyone? And I've listed a few of the things that this... That this um, We're missing a big one. Yeah, I, I didn't go... I, I purposefully didn't say I thought I'd save that for someone else. Go ahead, Lori. <laughs> I mean, there's too many. I'll say the the fact that God's law and God's government does not function in any way, shape, or form like human governments do was, I mean, it's like Russell said, it's been over a dozen years of cognitive dissonance in the best way. Well, we've been, you know, ingrained. You see things in a certain way. Your whole world works in this. It's hard to envision a world that works very differently than yours or a universe that works very differently. It's hard to imagine we're like the Ebola village of the universe where we're all dying. We just maybe have different symptoms of it, but we're all dying. And we think that the rest of the universe must be like that. Well, and along with as dramatic a a change and a shift as that was, I think the integrated evidence-based approach of thinking and analyzing, because again, many of the things that are causing us cognitive dissonance are things that we were at least taught, some of us from birth, whether we were settled into that or not, it's basically what we knew and kind of what we had staked our our beliefs on. And so that model of thinking with scripture, science and nature and experience at least gives us a a touchstone and a way to evaluate and come to the conclusion that, wow, that can't be right, given what I know about God, what I know about the way nature and science works, and what I know from my experience, I must have gotten that wonky, and I need to go back and revisit. Whereas before, I didn't really have any, any basis of of evaluating things like that. I just have to have faith. Yeah. And there is a place for faith. I mean, I have um, a, a good a family friend who, who um, asked, I mentioned one time, she, she was talking about how, you know, God is in everything and sort of belief. And, um, or if there is a God, it's in everything. Uh, and, and I said, I used her husband's an artist. So I said, yeah, I finally jumped in because I rarely ever discuss anything with her because she's a lawyer. <laughs> but um, in any event, I said, but her husband was an artist. And I said, well, when you see a beautiful pa- painting and you say, <clears throat> that is fabulous. The, the work it went into that, you appreciate the painting, but you don't act like the painting painted itself. Oh, yes, she said. So if there's a design, there has to be a designer. Well, then where did the, where did the designer come from? And I said, have you ever tried explaining to your cat where you came from? (laughs) Really, the difference between you and a cat may be like this, and you and God may be no end. If a cat cannot understand where we came from, you could talk yourself to your blue in the face, and your cat would never understand, because he has no capability of understanding anything about where you came from. He knows that you're there, that you're feeding him, you're loving him, you're petting him, so on. He understands, he feels that, that love and that care, but he cannot possibly understand where you came from. How can we, minnows of the earth, 
possibly understand where God came from? And should we discount that there's a God just because we can't understand? If you have a relationship with God, you're like the cat in that you understand. You're, you're being cared for. You're being nourished. You're being healed from painful things in life. You are loved. You're forgiven. You can feel that, but you can never understand where God came from. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. It, it is a statement of our limits of our intellect as it stands right now. But so many people discount God. So many people leave the church because somebody was unloving. Not because of the doctrines, but because somebody was unloving. Somebody didn't represent God in a loving way. Didn't have disagreements in a loving way. Presenting the truth and leaving people free. Truth as you see it. Uh, we'll run out of time. I just want to mention a couple of things where there was dis- really disagreement. The Bible talks about Rehoboam and Jeroboam. You can see my notes. Um, basically, Rehoboam was Solomon's son, and people asked him, light up on us a little bit. Solomon was kind of harsh on us, and he took the advice of the young men and said, no, I'm going to be even worse. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And they said, pox on you, and... Ten of, the, ten of the kingdoms went away from him and were ruled by a Jeroboam. That's an instance of how harsh, cruel treatment can be divisive. Church can be divided that way. Kingdoms can be divided that way. But I wanted to point out, in, in the New Testament, Gamaliel, I don't know how you pronounce that, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, this is in Acts 5, After Jesus' death and resurrection, the apostles were spreading the news everywhere. And the Sanhedrin, of course, wanted to put him to death because they weren't toeing the line. So, but he stood in the breach there. He actually said, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. And he brought up two cases where people kind of got people stirred up and then they kind of dissolved away. And uh, he advised to let these men alone. For if their purpose is an activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. Do we bow our heads? Dear Father, we don't want to find ourselves fighting against God. We want the Holy Spirit to take our diverse backgrounds, our natures, our abilities, and harmonize them into a unified effort a unified love, and a unified compassion and desire to help every other person we see find you as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.